0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, there's a widely held assumption, I believe, and this is an assumption I have succumbed to over and over, that if you have a warmer, friendlier relationship with yourself, you will not only slack off and be ineffective, but you might also be a doormat. My guest today says not true. She is making the case that self-compassion, when properly understood, can lead to a kind of ferocity. It can help you stand up for yourself and for other people. Kristin Neff is the central pioneer in the field of self-compassion research. While I at first did admittedly have some trouble connecting to this material, perhaps, really because of internalized sexism, if I'm being honest. Uh, Kristen's work ultimately has had a massive impact on me and on my own work. She is an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She's the author of the book Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And now she has a new book called Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power and Thrive. I do very quickly want to make super clear that this conversation is for everybody, whether you're a woman or not. These concepts are universal, although, as you will hear Kristen argue, there is special importance for women, she believes. Speaking of gender, we are dedicating this entire week to that subject. Coming up on Wednesday, we're going to talk about masculinity with a guest named Daniel Ellenberg. Very provocative conversation, very useful for me. In this episode, though, we talked to Kristen Neff about Tender self-compassion versus fierce self-compassion, the three main forms of fierce self-compassion, how to take a fierce self-compassion break, destructive versus constructive anger, why she wrote this new book specifically for women and why you should read it regardless of your gender socialization, how men can help the women in their lives develop this kind of ferocity, and how self-compassion can help all of us face our biases. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me talk many, many times about our companion meditation app. You might even be a little sick of it. So you might ask, why does Harris keep talking about this? If I want to meditate, can I just go on YouTube and search for a guided meditation for free or sit in silence on my own or use another app? Well, first of all, yes to all of that. You can do all of those things. There are many different ways to learn how to meditate, and if you've already found one or more ways that works for you, that's great. Keep going with it. However, I do think there's something special, if I do say so myself, about the relationship between what we do here on the podcast, interviewing world-renowned experts, getting their take on issues that impact our minds on a day-to-day basis, and the app where we share practices specifically chosen to help you apply the lessons you learn here on the podcast. There's a kind of deliberate symbiosis. In our conversation a few weeks ago, the meditation teacher, Sabine A. Selassie, hit on something key— about this relationship. Let me just play you a quick quote from her.
1: I'm a big proponent of what I would call integrating study and practice. So combined with our practice are what we call insights. That's why this tradition is called insight, is these aha moments. And you're so great at articulating that and
2: bringing people on to kind of discuss that. Like, what is it that we're learning? And then how do we kind of reincorporate that back into the practice
0: I will be honest. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable hearing Seb praise my interview skills. She may or may not be right about that. But what I do think she articulates brilliantly is why we're so gung ho about the aforementioned symbiosis between the work we do here on the podcast and the work that we do over on the app. Practice and study work best in concert because you're working several parts of the mind at once. That's how I learned from my teachers You know, engaging my prefrontal cortex through reading books or articles or having conversations. Many of those articles and books were recommended or sent directly to me by Seb. But then also doing the practices that help me sort of integrate the wisdom into deeper parts of my mind and my body. And that's really the experience we're striving to bring you here at 10% Happier. The wisdom of experts explained in a relatable way alongside practices that help you apply what you've learned. So I encourage you to give it a try by downloading the 10% Happier app for free wherever you get your apps. Uh, So end of pitch, but thanks for listening. Okay, here we go now with Kristen Neff. Kristen Neff, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Dan. I always love talking with you.
0: Yes, you are one of my favorite guests, and your work has had a really significant impact on me. So it's great to have you back on the show. So let's talk definitions for a second. What is the difference in your mind between fierce self-compassion and tender self-compassion?
2: Self-compassion has, I like to call it a yin and a yang aspect, right? So there's a way in which self-compassion just allows us to accept ourselves with kindness and warmth. It's more of a gentle, nurturing energy, the type of energy a parent might have for their child. And they could be screaming their head off, but a parent loves that child unconditionally and accepts them as they are. And so that's part of self-compassion. We tenderly hold ourselves. We hold our pain. We're nurturing. We're warm. We're understanding. But compassion, in the broader sense, is about alleviating suffering, right? That really defines what compassion is, concern with alleviating suffering. And although we may need to accept ourselves, sometimes we don't want to accept our behaviors or we don't want to accept a situation we're in that's causing harm. And that's where fierce self-compassion comes in. Fear self-compassion is the action-oriented side of compassion as opposed to just the accepting side. We say to ourselves, hey, this, this behavior you're doing, it's not working for you. You know, you need to change it because it's causing you harm. Or it might be, hey, you know, I want to encourage you to try this new thing or to reach your goals or motivate change because I care about you and I want you to be happy. Or in terms of situations, it might be, I kind of like to call it mama bear self compassion, right? That protective side of self compassion that says, hey, you're crossing my boundaries. It's not okay what you're doing. You're treating me unfairly. So, for example, I see the Black Lives Matter movements or or the Me Too movements as self-compassion, fierce self-compassion movements as people rise up, feel empowered to say, hey, that's not okay. you're harming me. So a lot of it is where the compassion is aimed and we need both in order to be healthy and whole.
0: It seems like and I'm guessing here that this might in some way be a reaction to one of the biggest points of resistance that I understand you face in your incredibly worthwhile and valuable and impactful mission to propagate the practice and study of self-compassion, which is people say, well, if I do that, I'm going to become a blob who, you know, let, let's, I'll let myself go or I'll become a doormat that people walk on.
2: Right. Exactly. There's this misconception that it makes you weak. It makes you soft. It makes you complacent. And that's really why I felt there was a need to highlight this fear side of self-compassion because people do misunderstand it. At the same time, you know, there is some truth to the fact that if you were just focusing on tender self-compassion, if you were just focusing on acceptance and that was it, that actually wouldn't be healthy, right? Then you might become complacent. So as you know, there's been a lot of criticisms of the mindfulness movement saying that, well, it's just about, you know, sitting on your couch and being mentally balanced and having equanimity, but meanwhile, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Now, I think that's also not an accurate criticism because people are understanding that even with the mindfulness movement, you know, we need to use our ability to pay attention and to see clearly to make productive change as well. Uh, But I think the language helps. Having these two different terms discussing the two different sides of compassion, love, care, is really helpful to highlight for people that it's not just one thing.
0: Can you say a little bit more about, you mentioned Me Too and Black Lives Matter, but what else would fierce self-compassion look like, just so people can really conjure it in their minds?
2: Speaking up, if someone's treating you unfairly, maybe, maybe in a work context, maybe um, someone's bullying you at work, right? speaking up and saying, hey, that's not okay, or doing something about it, you know, whatever the proper thing to do is maybe to go to the HR department or, you know, again, that would depend on the situation. But the willingness to do something, to take action, whether it's speaking up, whether it's protesting, you know, the Women's March I see as the self-compassion movement, actually any social justice movement where people band together to say, hey, harm is being caused, It's not okay, we need to do something about it. I see as self-compassion movements. You know, and in some ways, when you're talking about groups of people, the difference between compassion for others and self-compassion kind of gets blurred. And for good reason, because if society is causing harm, since I'm part of society, it also harms me. And so we really need to include ourselves in the circle of compassion, whether it's an externally focused social justice movement Or if it's saying to myself, like, hey, Kristen, you got to exercise because your body is not healthy. You aren't feeling well. You're harming yourself. I know it's a pain, but really you got to do your yoga because, you know, harm is being caused. And so it can be faced internally. It can be faced externally. You know, Daniel, you may know this. If you look at a brain on someone doing compassion meditation, the parts of the brain associated with planned movement, motor movement are activated. So compassion isn't like just an emotion. It's not just like a, a good feeling, hearts and flowers feeling. It's this readiness to help. And that's built into our evolution. It's built into our biology, this readiness to help. And so again, this readiness to help sometimes actually the most helpful thing to do, and you probably know this from, I don't know, arguments with your wife or something, sometimes the most helpful thing to do is just to be there, just to listen, just to accept just to be with, not to try to change everything. Sometimes that's precisely what's needed to alleviate suffering. But sometimes that's not the most helpful thing. You know, sometimes action is required. And so the ability to draw on both is uh, really important. And also it takes some wisdom to know what to do. You know, we'll get it wrong. Then you can give yourself compassion for getting it wrong. (laughs) You know, so it's really, it's like a process as opposed to a set destination.
0: I didn't have this on my mind to asked this question going into the conversation, but it just came up in my mind while I was listening to you speak there. Maybe it's a cliche that you sometimes hear is that you, if you don't love yourself or if you're not compassionate with yourself, you you can't love other people. You can't be compassionate with other people. Right. Do you think that's true?
2: Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not empirically. It's not true. That's for sure. That There's a lot of people and you may be one of them or you may know some of them. They're genuinely compassionate to others. They aren't faking it. They really do care about others, they are kind, warm, and supportive to others, and they aren't self-compassionate. There's almost no one who goes the other direction, who's genuinely compassionate, warm, and supportive to oneself and not to others. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this. I think there's some physiological reasons as well as social reasons. We aren't taught that it's a good thing to be compassionate to ourselves. Having said that, what we know is that especially when you help people increase their self-compassion levels, it also increases their compassion for others, and really importantly, it reduces burnout. There's a big problem if you look at people in caregiving professions, whether you're, they're healthcare professionals or you know teachers or or parents caring for your elderly parents people who are spending a lot of energy caring for others and don't include themselves in the circle of compassion, actually they will burn out and they won't be able to sustain giving that compassion to others. So what self-compassion does is it gives you the resources to care for others. It does increase it, but it's not the case that it's necessary even before you can have compassion for others. And in fact, if you look at the physiology of it, and I did say, I think there's some physiological reasons as human beings, we involve the care system, right? This is the mammalian care system. When we feel close and connected to others, we release oxytocin, opiates, we feel good, we feel safe. The system was designed to prompt parents to care for their infants so that infants could survive and those infants you know, passed on their genes, and also that prompted infants to want to feel safe and be close to the parents. So the care system evolved to care for others, to be an interpersonal experience. The system that's more relevant in terms of evolution for self is actually the threat defense system, right? When we feel threatened in some way, we go in fight, flight, or free mode, and we try to use fight, flight, or flee to keep ourselves safe so we don't get eaten by predators. So habitually, what happens, let's say when you fail or make a mistake, is the first thing gets triggered is, oh no, there's a problem, there's a threat. I go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And so we we fight ourselves, we beat ourselves up thinking that's going to keep ourselves safe. We flee into shame, we kind of emotionally flee from others thinking, oh, other people are gonna attack me, I'm gonna hide my hang my head in shame to be safe, or we freeze, we ruminate, thinking if I just don't do anything, maybe I'll be safe. The care system, although we can use it for ourselves, it's not instinctual because it actually didn't seem to evolve to care for ourselves, it evolved to care for others. So what we're doing is we're kind of tapping into another system, it's almost like a hack. We're tapping into this other system that comes online for others. By the way, if your best friend gets fired from her job, you aren't threatened personally. That's why you can more easily tap into the care system to help her, right? But maybe your child, something happens to them. If you do feel threatened, that's when you go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. So in other words, I think there are some physiological reasons why it's easier to feel compassion for others than for oneself. And, I, you know, that's why I don't think it's necessary to feel compassion for yourself first. Certainly evolutionarily, that wouldn't really necessarily make sense. Having said that, when you're able to make that U-turn and harness the power of compassion to help yourself— then it helps you sustain giving to others, and it does enhance your capacity to give to others. It enhances relationships, for instance. It enhances forgiveness. enhances perspective taking. So it helps, but it's not like absolutely a precondition.
0: It can put whatever capacity you have coming out of the womb or coming out of whatever culture you come out of, it could put that on steroids. Yes. And it can help you keep doing it without burning out.
2: Precisely. Precisely. Yeah.
0: I mean, that seems to fit right into Fierce compassion, learning how to be a good citizen, a good spouse, a good parent, a good colleague without running out of gas.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, in fact, um, I talk about three main forms of fierce self-compassion. There's there's probably more, but these are the three I've identified. You know, so basically, if your goal is to take action to alleviate suffering— there may be like dozens of types of actions that are be required, but one of them is providing for yourself, providing for your own needs, even if sometimes that means saying no to others. So it may be, you know, going on that meditation retreat or taking time for yourself or taking a class you want or not overburdening you yourself in terms of work commitments, right? This is an important way we take action to care for ourselves. And this is, You know, really important, especially for people, let's face it, people like us when we say yes to them. People like us when we're agreeable. They like us to help them out all the time. And so for some people, their self-esteem is actually contingent on approval from others. And so one of the things that self-compassion gives you, and they they work hand in hand, is when you can accept yourself, that's more the tender self-compassion. It means you aren't so, your your self-esteem, your sense of worth isn't so contingent on other people liking you, which actually empowers you to take fierce action to say, no, I'm sorry, I'd love to help you, but I can't. I need to do this for myself. So it all works in concert.
0: While we're at it, can you tell me or us about the other two variants of fierce self-compassion?
2: One is providing for yourself, providing for your needs. Another one is protection. Again, very, very important. This is The word fierceness really evokes this protective mama bear stance, but this is drawing boundaries. Let's say you have a relative pushing their political views on you or something like that. The willingness to speak up and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear it. Or again, like I say, the Me Too movement. If people are crossing your boundaries in terms of being inappropriate in a work context or doing something that makes you feel uncomfortable, standing up and saying, I'm sorry, that's not okay, right? Or protesting injustice. If you feel you, you or maybe a group you belong to, or actually any group of people are being untreated unfairly, part of alleviating suffering is doing what you need to do. That could be protesting, it could be marching, it could be passing laws, it can be doing petitions. It can just be talking to people, trying to get them to see a different point of view. So protection is a really important form of self compassion. And then finally, you know, motivation. That, that's a, a key way in which self-compassion expresses itself. So motivation is all about taking action, you know, just do it. And people get so confused because they when they think of self compassion just as acceptance, then how does acceptance relate to action? And the thing is, what you're doing, the reason they actually help each other is you're accepting yourself as a person. Again, you aren't necessarily accepting your behaviors. So I teach self-compassion to athletes, they say, but you know, my performance has to be excellent. It has to be better. I can't accept my current level of you know, athletic skill. Well, yes, that's true. You cannot accept your level of athletic skill at the same time that you accept yourself. And what the research shows really clearly is that when you accept yourself as a person, you don't shame yourself, you don't criticize yourself. The baseline is unconditional self-acceptance. That actually gives you more ability to change your behaviors, to work harder, to you know, to reach your goals. So again, the two really do work in concert, but people get confused about them, which is why I think it helps to differentiate them.
0: How do we practice? Fierce Self-Compassion, how do we, because everything you're describing sounds, it really makes a lot of sense. You're a scientist. Of course, we want to do what scientists say. How do we actually get better at this skill?
2: Yeah, so that's why I'm really excited about my new book, Fierce Self-Compassion, because it's not just the ideas. I've actually developed practices specifically designed to increase more this fierce quality of self-compassion. They're pretty much all adapted from the mindful self-compassion program that I developed with Chris Germer, and I've just tailored them to focus on developing these particular qualities. So for instance, the self-compassion break is a practice I often teach, and generally it's focused more on the tender self-compassion about, you know, being warm towards yourself, supportive, accepting, caring. And so I just tweaked a little bit. So for instance, body posture. I found, and this mainly comes from because I've been teaching fierce self-compassion workshops the last couple of years, standing up straighter, holding your body posture. It's kind of like that power posing in a weird way, you know, when you hold your body more upright, it tends to energize you. The language you use is different. So for instance, the three components of self-compassion, which are kindness, a sense of common humanity and mindfulness... In their tender form, it feels like loving, connected presence, right? And kind of tender, accepting that the kindness is loving, we feel connected when we remember our common humanity and we're very present with mindfulness. But in fierce protective form, the three components feel like brave, empowered clarity, very different, right? The kindness manifests as bravery, like this kind of ferocity, willing to do what you need to do to protect yourself or to say no or draw boundaries, Mm -hmm. The common humanity, is very interesting, and I didn't even really realize this at first when I was putting together the model. When you can bond with others while you're standing up for yourself, when you don't feel so alone, this is what empowers social justice movements. If you look at social justice movements, the reason they aren't just one person, they're collective movements, is because when we feel alone and it's just me, we feel kind of weak, we feel helpless. But when we bond with others, and we actually gain power when we realize hey, if you're harming me, you're harming, you know, lots of other people and we aren't going to stand for it anymore. So it's it's a sense of empowerment. And then mindfulness, you know, mindfulness people, sometimes they think it's just about acceptance, just about being present with what is. But as you know, from your practice, mindfulness gives you a lot of clarity, a lot of discernment. You can actually see more clearly what's causing harm and what's not causing harm. And so that clarity can also be used to identify harm and to find ways to speak up in a clear way. And so the self-compassion break, I just tailored it. So, you know, you're kind of evoking bravery and you're evoking remembering your feelings of empowerment and you're evoking this clarity about, you know, what you see is acceptable or not acceptable or healthy or unhealthy. It feels really different. And so I developed a lot of practices like this.
0: So so tell me what it would look like, this self-compassion break. How would I do it?
2: We use language to evoke the three components. So first of all, you focus with the clarity. You usually start with the mindfulness and the self-compassion break because you have to have the awareness. So really just seeing clearly, identifying some threat, some harm, some unfairness, some boundary violation. So you really just let yourself see. I see clearly, I acknowledge that this isn't okay. You know, oftentimes we just kind of want to sweep it under the rug because it's kind of a hassle to have to deal with. So I'd really rather not look at it. Oh, well, you know, maybe it's not such a big deal. That's just the way men are, whatever it is, just the way bosses are. So you say, you know, this is not okay, real clarity or whatever it is you're feeling. This is, this person is crossing my boundary. Use that. And then you remember with common humanity that I'm not alone in this, right? If someone is harming me, they're harming other people. When I stand up for myself, I'm actually standing up for anyone who's being treated unfairly or harmed in some way. So you kind of connect with that feeling of empowerment. And then to evoke bravery, instead of maybe putting both hands on your heart, maybe you put a fist on your heart, right? Or some gesture that feels more supportive, or maybe both hands on your solar plexus. You really hold your back up and your shoulders back. And then you say, you know, I commit to protecting myself. I will do what needs to be done, even if it's a little scary for me. You, know, you really evoke that sense of commitment and bravery. And then here's the thing with all my fierce self-compassion practices. You evoke the fierce energy, but the last step is always some integration with tenderness. Because if you're too fierce without enough tenderness, you know, you might be hostile or aggressive or may, we may get out of balance. So I might, you might have your fist on your heart. Go ahead, do it with me, Dan. Put your fist on your heart. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I've got
0: a and cat on my lap, so I'm full on. All right, on, well, uh...
2: but, but you can, your cat can make room for your fist. Put your fist on your heart. So just kind of feel that, you know, it feels a little more empowering when you've got your fist on your heart. The body can really evoke sensation. And then if you put your other hand over it kind of gently, the idea is you're really integrating these two energies. You're fierce, you're brave, you're powerful in terms of willing to take action in the world. But the hand, the gentle hand is also, you're also accepting yourself. In other words, we aren't striving to control. We aren't striving to control other people or to harm other people. We're simply being strong and powerful, but also loving at the same time. And so integration is really key.
0: So this fierce self-compassion break that you're describing, these three steps, is that something where we would, you know, be stepping away from our desk or whatever, and actually sitting and meditating while we do this? Or is it a free-range exercise?
2: The reason we call it a break is because, you know, you can do it in three minutes, especially once you find language that works for you. It's kind of like hitting the reset button on a computer. It's not something that you would probably do as a meditation, although maybe you want to do it at the beginning of your meditation. So the self-compassion break is always aimed at a particular situation right? So if I teach people the self-compassion break, I'll say, okay, call up a situation in your life where you feel you need to stand up for yourself. But in actual practice, that situation would just happen, right? In real life, there'd be some situation that arises where you think, you know, I really need to stand up for myself here. Then you might do a self-compassion break to really help you embody that fierce energy that you're going to need to be you know, brave and clear and empowered. I've done a bathroom break, or you could do it silently. You know, just kind of internally, when no one knows what you're doing. Self-compassion at the end of the day is a mindset. It's a way of approaching difficulty with with kindness, with warmth, with compassion, with bravery, the sense of connectedness, and with clarity and mindfulness. So it's just a way of reorienting yourself in the moment, so that you're dealing with whatever's happening with compassion and that's gonna allow you to get through it more effectively.
0: I just want to level set for folks who might be listening to this and hadn't heard of a self-compassion break because what we just talked about was a fierce self-compassion break. A self-compassion break is a three-part exercise that you developed and you, you said about this, but I just want to put a fine point on it. The first step is mindfulness, just seeing clearly what's going on right now.
2: Yeah. Acknowledging your pain, validating it, acknowledging the threat, validating it, acknowledging the need, validating it. Whatever it is, wherever your compassion is aimed, first step is kind of acknowledging and validating it.
0: Second step is noticing common humanities. I'm not the only human being dealing with this.
2: Exactly. So kind of counteracting the sense of isolation and separation, which is so normal for us to fall into, which does disempower us when we feel like it's just me, there's something wrong with me, or I'm, you know, it's me against the world. It's hard to feel brave if you feel all alone.
0: And the third is kindness to yourself in that moment.
2: Kindness to yourself, yeah. And so sometimes that kindness maybe manifests as self acceptance, warmth. I might be love. I love you. It's okay to be imperfect. I care about you. Or it may manifest as bravery, like, you know, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to support you. And it does seem a little weird to speak to yourself this way. You know, it, I got to say, self-compassion practice at first feels a bit weird. You, you get used to it. The three elements are almost like a recipe. How do you bake a loaf of bread? Well, you need yeast, you need flour, you need water or something like that. It's kind of like the three ingredients. And you need them all together to evoke this mind state that's so helpful of self-compassion.
0: I got it, got it, got it, got it. What I want to clarify just for listeners is okay, now that they understand that the fierce self compassion break that you've described is a variation on the self compassion break, which they may not have heard of, can you just recapitulate again the three steps of the fierce compassion?
2: The fierce one, when it's aimed at protecting, like brave, empowered clarity. So, first you get that clarity. You know, often we don't want to look at it clearly, we don't want to acknowledge. Um, Well, we do two things when we aren't mindful. Either we avoid and suppress. Oh, well, that's just the way men are. You know, it's no big deal. We aren't acknowledging maybe the threat. Or the other thing we can do is what I call over-identification. So when we get lost in it, like we have no perspective, we're just freaked out by it. And when we're freaked out or lost in it, like, oh my God, he's doing this to me. And you, you kind of, you're just running away with it. You don't actually have the perspective to step outside of yourself and say, hey, how can I help? So you have clarity, you see clearly what's happening, you aren't ignoring it, but you aren't lost in it either. You know, so this is not okay, this is what's happening. You know. I'm being treated unfairly, my boundaries are being violated, whatever it is that's happening. And then the common humanity, remember that this is something that can empower you. You aren't alone, right? You may feel alone, but in fact, in reality, this is something like, this is why the Me Too movement was so empowering because women as individuals felt like, it's just me, there must be something wrong with me. Or again, the Black Lives Matter movement. When you bond with other people, even if it's just mentally, it also helps if you talk with other people, but even just mentally, when you realize that you aren't alone, that you're a human being, that other people have experienced this as well, you can draw strength and a sense of empowerment from that. Right. So you also feel connected It's also there, it's more of the tender feeling, oh, I'm not alone, but it says, I'm not alone, I'm strong. You know, I'm standing up for women or I'm standing up for justice or whatever it is. And then the kindness, the reason I call my book How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up and Claim Their Power is because, again, kindness isn't just about warmth and acceptance. It's also about mama bear. You know, I've got your back. You want to see a ferocious human being you know, you start threatening their kids. And whether you're a father or a mother, I'm sure, you know, Dan, if someone threatens your kids, watch out, right? That incredibly ferocious, protective, brave energy that comes when we protect someone we love. We can also harness that to protect ourselves. You know, and sometimes that may mean getting angry, you know, or being really, really focused or just really incredibly courageous. Think of a firefighter who pulls people out of a burning building. Incredible act of compassion and kindness. But it manifests not as like, I really feel for you. It must be so hard to be in that far. That's not how it manifests. right? It manifests as action, doing something. And so we can actually harness that energy to strengthen ourselves as well. So that's protecting. Now for providing, they take a different form. Mindfulness, in this case, what mindfulness helps us do when we want to meet our needs is really being able to ask the question, well, what's authentically true for me? And we need mindfulness to do that. We need to pay really close attention to even understand what's authentic for me. What's my truth? What do I really need? If we're just doing what society says we should do, for instance, or if we ignore our needs and we're just like, okay, I'm just going through the program. I'm doing the steps of my day. We don't pause, really mindfully ask, what is it that I need? Am I hungry? Am I tired? Maybe I love music and I'm not getting my artistic fulfillment. Do I love nature? So mindfulness in this case allows us to be authentic. Common humanity in the case of fulfilling our needs, this again, it looks very different. So what we know about self-compassion is, and my research shows this, I've done work with self-compassion, how people resolve conflicts. They don't subordinate their needs to those of others, but they don't prioritize their needs either. It's really all about balance. It's about finding compromise, finding a way to get everyone's needs met. So the common humanity in this case is really all about balance. How do I include myself? So I'm not a doormat. I'm not just ignoring my own needs, but I'm also not like my way or the highway. You know, we don't want it to be selfish. That's not compassion either. So common humanity in this case is balanced. And the kindness is really about a fulfillment, really honoring your need for fulfillment, really saying, This is important, you know, to care for myself. I need to fulfill my needs. You know, I need to do whatever it takes. Again, whether it's going on that meditation retreat or spending time with my friends or whatever it is that really nurtures me, it's not just about warmth with the tender self compassion. It's actually doing things to fulfill yourself. So the break in this case might be the mindfulness, just really, you know, asking yourself, well, what is authentically true for me? This is really important. Validating that, again, validating the need but in a balanced way, common humanity. So the second we feel it's selfish, then we kind of shut down and we recognize, okay, it's me and the other person. How can we compromise? How can we come to a solution that meets everyone's needs as much as possible? And then the kindness is just really um, allowing ourselves to feel that fulfillment and really validating that fulfillment's an important part of caring for ourselves. So that's that one. And then the last one, is the motivating self-compassion break. So the motivating self-compassion break. The mindfulness in this case is what gives us vision. So one of the things with mindfulness when we really see clearly is it um, gives us vision, first of all, about what's not working for us and what it could look like. You know, it's kind of like having our eye on the prize. With mindfulness, we remember, hey, this is what I want to achieve. Maybe you're an athlete and you want to improve your game or maybe you've made some mistake, maybe you've failed miserably at something. Mindfulness gives you, first of all, the vision to see, okay, that didn't work, but also see how you would like it to work, how you'd like to make the change. So mindfulness provides the vision. Common humanity in this case, now this is really interesting, at least to me it's interesting, is common humanity is really recognizing the ability to learn from your failures, I use the term common humanity because I thought it was something people could understand. But in Buddhist practice, and for me, this comes from my Buddhist practice, you're really pointing to interdependence, interbeing, the understanding that causes and conditions come together and are all connected. That's really the root of it. So sometimes that means, you know, I'm not alone. But another way you can understand it is wisdom, right? The wisdom of seeing how causes and conditions come together to create whatever happens. And so the wisdom of common humanity allows us to learn from our failures. Oh, I see what happened. You know, I I did that and that led to this or, you know, whatever it is to happen, but but we need to learn from our failures to be able to grow from them. This is why people, they get it so wrong when they think self-criticism increases motivation. Self-criticism creates shame. It shuts down your ability to learn because you feel so horrible about yourself. You can't see clearly. (laughs) Compassion allows you to say, okay, it's only human to fail. What can I learn from this? What can I do different next time? So that's the common humanity. And then the kindness is the encouragement. Again, just like a compassionate parent doesn't say to their kid, oh, that's fine. Don't go to school. Get ass You know, I love you anyway. They do say I love you anyway, but a compassionate parent encourages their child to, you know, do the best they can because they care, they want them to be happy, they want them to grow. And so again, the harnessing the energy of kindness with motivation is really all about encouraging. So the self-compassion break in this case uses the three steps. First, we get the clear vision, maybe, you know, what went wrong, and what could be better, what we want for ourselves. The common humanity is, okay, what can I learn? How can I have wisdom to learn from what happened? And then the kindness, how can I encourage myself to do something different next time?
0: Much more of my conversation with Kristen Neff right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, Let me just go back to the uh, one of the flavors of fear, self-compassion. The first one you started with is protective. And you said that the kindness, the third step of kindness might actually manifest as anger because something's wrong and you need to do something about it. How do you not let that anger drive you to be unkind to somebody else, even if your motivation is protective?
2: So I have a whole chapter in my book on anger. And by the way, I'm not an anger expert. In fact, I would say quite the opposite. I struggle with anger, (laughs) which is one of the reasons I, I wrote this book kind of to come to terms with anger, because it is in many ways one of the most challenging emotions because we get carried away with it. We start doing something harmful, something that's against our values. And so basically, I did look in the literature, though, and there's pretty good support for the idea that there is both constructive and destructive anger. And to me, the best way to think about it, especially in terms of compassion, is constructive anger alleviates suffering, reduces harm. Destructive anger causes harm. And that's kind of your dividing line. And also, is it aimed at a person, right? I said, you know, with fear, self-compassion, it's more aimed at behaviors or situations. The tenderness is more aimed at the person accepting yourself. Anger is kind of the same way. Constructive anger is aimed at changing situations or behaviors. Destructive anger is personal. You're a bad person. I hate you. You're an evil villain, right? Constructive anger is actually very, very useful. It focuses us. It energizes us. It reduces the fear response. It communicates that something's wrong. Something needs to be paid attention to. So constructive anger might be at a situation. Racial injustice, right? We should be angry at racial injustice, sexual harassment and abuse. We should be angry at sexual harassment and abuse, right? We need to be angry to, to motivate us to say it's not okay. It needs to stop now. But that's different than getting really personal and saying people are evil, you know, all men are evil, all white people are evil, hating people who are doing bad behaviors. When you start to do that, unfortunately, it just adds to the problem. I mean, obviously, I'm not the first one to talk about this. You know, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, they talked about this. The Buddha. The Buddha talked about this, right? But it doesn't mean there's no place for anger. There's constructive anger, which isn't personal, which is focused on preventing harm, changing behaviors or situations that cause harm. That's constructive. Destructive anger is when it gets personal and it actually hates or gets hostile or aggressive. Having said that, it's hard not to get carried away in that. I mean, I I, like I say, I I struggle with it. I'm not so much aggressive. I don't call people names, but I can be really blunt, especially if I'm fired up about something, and my bluntness isn't always tempered, so it can be kind of rude or harmful. Again, I'm not going to call someone names, but I'm going to say something so bluntly that the impact may be not a good one. I Actually, I call this my bulldog. So I've got mama bear, which is protective, but bulldog is not thinking much about what's the effect of my what I say on the other person. And that's not healthy. So I've struggled with this. With my bulldog side, I used to, I'm gonna admit it, I used to have some shame about it. You know, this is something, I I did have self-compassion. I didn't beat myself up from my bulldog side, but I always kind of thought, this is something I needed to work with. I needed to be able to hold that it was a kind of a negative part of my personality that I wanted to work on. And once I started doing the self-compassion work, what I realized is that energy that leads me to be, you know, blunt is actually what I call the energy of Kali. Who's a, she's another Hindu goddess. Kali is a destroyer of illusion, and she's pictured as, you know, having all these severed heads, and she's very scary, and quite ferocious. What she's actually doing is cutting away the illusion of separation. So when Kali is aimed correctly, she's actually in the service of compassion because she's cutting away the illusion of separation. So my anger is like really intricately tied to my fear self-compassion. It's partly what's allowed me to achieve what I've achieved in my life. You know, it's it's a power source for me. So I, I learned that instead of feeling ashamed of that part of me, I needed to honor it really see the good part of it, the uses of it, but to temper it with the tenderness so that it doesn't get personal and doesn't cause harm. Again, it's still, I don't get it right. I get it wrong a lot. And I, you know, I get knocked off balance and then I rebalance myself. But it was so important for me, I think especially as a woman, because women are so socialized not to be angry. You know, a woman is also a meditation teacher. You know, "Mm, that's not good So to be able to see the constructive uses of it, the good parts of it, and the way we can harness it for good is really important. But we also have to do due diligence and try as much as we can to make sure it's not personal and it's not harmful. And it is possible. It's challenging, <laughs> but it's possible.
0: I want to talk about women in a second, but let me just stay on anger for a second, just generally on anger, because, you know, I am definitely not an expert here, so I, I may be misunderstanding this but i feel like i've heard the argument you know in buddhist circles that anger is actually never really constructive that it is always toxic that doesn't mean you can't be forceful and intense but that anger which has a sort of hatred embedded in it or um This rage. I mean, the Buddha himself said, you know, anger has a honey tip, but a poison root. You know, it can feel good at the tip, but at the root of it, it is still poisonous. Is it your contention that he was only talking about destructive anger, not constructive anger?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think part of the issue is the the lack of clarity in the language. You know, what does the word anger point to? And I think that that is true if you're talking about destructive anger, which is personal which is aimed at uh, harming people or aimed at, at people, you know, as you say if there's hatred there, there usually needs to be a person there. So if you're angry at a person, you're wrong, I'm blaming you, it's your fault, you know, I hate you, that's going to be a poison arrow. But if the anger is, you know, the anger of the Me Too movement. So I, I write about in my book, you know, I had an experience with someone who turned out to be a sex predator. I was enraged. <laughs> But I was tried as much as possible to make sure that that rage was channeled toward protection. So protecting the woman involved, speaking up, making sure it was going to happen in the future. I think there's a reason that anger is there. Anger is a protector. It has a protective function. So as long as you're harnessing the protective function of anger to alleviate suffering, to prevent harm, at the same time that you're trying to have it not cause harm, It's useful. We don't want to cut off this really important power source because it it can be channeled for good. So it takes some skill to work with it. And again, I'm not an expert, but I do know that we don't want to shame ourselves for it. We don't want to think it's just a bad thing because anger has a lot of constructive functions, including things like reducing the fear response. That's a very useful thing. If you need to do something brave, like protest, Maybe the National Guard is there. You know, you need to be brave not to just like slink off and, you know, and, and not stand up for yourself. Anger can provide a source of that courage. It is a messy process. That's why at the end of my book, I talk about the compassionate mess. We shouldn't expect us ourselves to always get it right. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to, you know, we're going to get personal. Then we're going to have to apologize. We're going to continually fall off balance. And it's really not a matter of a destination. Like we get there and we're perfect and we've got balanced anger all the time and, you know, integration of yin and yang and I'm enlightened. I mean, maybe some people are enlightened, but I'm not expecting that for myself. But I can expect to be this compassionate mess, which is, okay. And and this is, if you want to see me personally with my anger issues, I'm a little better at it than I used to be. But what I'm a lot better at is and almost immediately, if I get out of balance and it, and it is too blunt and it's harmful, almost immediately apologizing, almost immediately owning what I've done, almost immediately trying to repair the situation, which is better than nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's way better than nothing.
2: I've stopped shaming myself for my anger because I do realize that that force, that intense, passionate, wanting things to be Right. There's a part of it which is really healthy, which is wanting to prevent injustice, you know, wanting to prevent harm. And I think we need to be able to tap into it. Otherwise, we're losing out on something that can be very, very helpful when used skillfully.
0: I'm curious, why did you write this book specifically for women?
2: I debated a little bit how I was going to write the book because It is about balance. Everyone needs both fierce and tender self-compassion, and we need to have them in balance. But gender role socialization really imbalances men and women in a very different way. So people who are socialized to be male, and I'm using this word particularly because it's not about biological sex. Whether you're cisgender or transgender, if you are socialized to be male, the messages you get are, It's okay to be fierce. In fact, it's good to be fierce, but don't be too tender. You know, people are called names. It starts with an S, and I'm not going to say it because I recently learned some people consider it a homophobic slur, so I don't want to use the word. But there's a word with an S that boys are called if they're too tender, if they're too sensitive. Males are socialized to believe that tenderness is a weakness, emotional sensitivity is a weakness. They just got to be tough as nails. And this really harms males. It really harms them because what we know from the research is the ability to be warm and supportive and tender with yourself is incredibly important for well-being. Reduces depression, reduces anxiety, you know, enhances physical health. It's a really powerful source of coping and resilience that men are cut off from because of gender role socialization. Only about 15% of any audience I teach to are men. And I have to say it's because, well, compassion is a female thing. And females are accorded less power in society. So that means compassion is a weakness. I want to be strong, not for me. People who are socialized as females are given the message that it's good to be tender, well, to others, not to yourself. You better sacrifice yourself, but it's good to help others, to be tender, to be warm and supportive to others. It's really not okay to be fierce, to be angry because that's kind of ugly. You know. Women have a lot of socialization against anger. If you look at the research, a man who's angry or fierce, he's more well-respected, people believe him more, they think he's passionate. A woman who's angry is considered unhinged, she's crazy, and she also must not be very nice. So, people, um, they're less convinced by an angry woman, and they definitely like angry women less. So, women get all these messages that it's not okay to be angry or to be fierce. Not only just anger, but also competence. This really harms women because a really powerful, competent, agentic woman, she's liked less because people think she's not tender, and we like tender, nurturing women. We think it's either or, <laughs> and that also harms women. So women have all this um, baggage against being fierce, which really is directly tied to their disempowerment. And in the book, you know, I talk about patriarchy and power inequality because you can't really separate it from that. I mean, the system is designed to disempower women, historically. You know, women couldn't own their own property, they couldn't own their own money, they couldn't vote. You know, who did it help the fact that they were only valued for like doing what their husbands want or raising their kids? I mean, that really fed an unequal power system. And so women are coming up against different barriers than men are. So I first thought, well, I could write the book for men. It looks people socialize as men. It looks like this and people socialize as women. It looks like this, but it was just way too complicated. So I wrote the book for women and I'm Hoping someone like you, Dan, writes the book for men. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slightly different book, really helping men to embrace their tender side and seeing how that's going to make them stronger and not weaker. But it was it was just too complicated. A lot of my male friends have read the book, and what they say is: first of all, all the practices are gender neutral, right? It doesn't matter your gender identity. And I have practices also for tender self-compassion. The practices that help you develop all these different tools of self-compassion and especially integrate them, they're helpful for everyone. And also, you know, a lot of men who've read the book have said, well, I didn't really understand. You know, they didn't really understand this, the intense socialization that women feel not to be fierce and how this might harm them. So, you know, a lot of men have wives or friends or children who are females, and they've said it really has helped them put a lens on that. And Dan, I want to read your book, even if you write it just for men, (laughs) (laughs) because I would like to understand the male experience as well. So I think it's helpful for everyone, but it's aimed particularly at countering the female gender role socialization and also the history of patriarchy that has made it hard for us to be our full, true, balanced, authentic selves.
0: How can men help the women in their lives to be more fierce?
2: One of the things that I think is really helpful, and by the way, it's not just men, I think it's all people, is to understand our biases against fierceness to women, right? So for instance, I'm actually more young than yin. I'm actually pretty fierce by nature. You know, a lot of it's just personality. And it's been a problem for me. People have disliked me because of this fierceness, because they think if I'm fierce, then I can't be kind or nurturing, and therefore I'm not going to like her very much. So one of the things men can do, and also women to other women, is just really ask yourself, hmm, this behavior that I'm judging in this woman, would I have the same negative reaction if it was a man doing it? To what extent are my unconscious biases filtering my perception of the situation in a way that's actually harmful? And so just being aware of your filters and the fact that there are all all these unconscious biases against women displaying their fierceness and bringing more awareness to those will actually allow you to accept the woman in your life and their fierceness with more compassion. And again, not even just compassion, but awe. I mean, mama bear, and it's funny, mama bear is actually, you know, if you think it's the mother bear, not the father bear, who's got this intense protective energy toward her cubs. So making space for that and recognizing it. And so if a woman's really fierce, instead of just being scared by it, you know, saying, "Ooh, I don't like that, really saying, wow, that's beautiful. Again, you need to draw your boundaries. If the fierceness is harming you in some way or crossing your boundaries, you also may need to be fierce and say, hey, it's okay. You can't treat me that way. You can't call me names. But the power of the anger, yes yeah, a little scary, but I see the power of it. And it's actually a beautiful thing. Maybe helping the woman to focus on whatever, the behavior or the issue as opposed to making it personal.
0: What's interesting is that... Um looking at your own biases actually, in my experience, requires self-compassion.
2: Oh, it does. Absolutely. And so that's why I think self-compassion is so important for social justice movements, especially the tender self-compassion. Because what happens when we recognize our biases, you know, racial biases, gender biases, and we have them whether or not we want them. Because if you grew up as a kid watching films or watching TV you have unconscious biases. They're almost impossible to avoid. They just shaped our neuronal pathways. And the thing about white privilege or understanding systemic racism, part of the reason it's so uncomfortable for people is people immediately feel shame about it. I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. And you know it's understandable because maybe consciously you aren't. So you need a lot of acceptance and tenderness to say, hey, I do have these biases. I wish I didn't, but I do. It's okay. I don't need to shame myself. I can accept that. Okay, that's that's all right. I'm imperfect. I grew up in this society. This is how my brain is wired. And therefore, can I maybe see them? That's kind of the tenderness. Can I see them clearly without judging myself so harshly? And then the fierce self-compassion is see them and then also commit as much as possible to not be so influenced by them, to question myself, to think about would I have this same reaction if someone was different, you know, what's really happening? And being brave to say, for instance, if you come across coworkers, maybe they're saying something sexist or racist, right? Actually being willing to speak up and say, hey, that's not okay. Or maybe people are doing it unconsciously. Maybe they're saying something that, you know, like, I have a story in my book like, oh, that Laura, she's such a cow. Can you believe how mean she was? You can say something like, hmm, do you think if Laura were a man, we'd have that same reaction? You know what I mean? And that's kind of scary to to speak up. But if you really want to commit to more social justice, we need to be willing to speak up and say something. Otherwise, things will never change.
0: Just as we wind down here, it might be worth just emphasizing... Maybe it's reemphasizing the intertwined nature of fierce and tender self-compassion, that they enable one another.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. That's so right. So, in other words, some people are afraid that if they give them this tender self-compassion, that it will disempower them, that they won't take action. And it's actually quite the opposite. And this is what the research shows as well. So, in other words, the research shows it's linked to both both forms of coping. In other words, the more we accept ourselves as we are, the more we care for ourselves, the warmer we are toward ourselves, the more able we are to take action through encouragement, out of care, but they don't work against each other. They actually mutually enhance one another, which is important because it gets at some of these myths and blocks that stand in the way of people being self-compassionate.
0: Finally, can I just push you or prod you to plug your new book and anything else you want people to know about that you've worked on or places they can find you on the internet?
2: Yeah, so my new book, "Fear Self-Compassion, How a Woman Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive, came out on June 15th. It's very recent. It's an unusual book because it combines research, combines kind of history, some theory, combines a lot of personal stories that get very personal in the book, but also practices, concrete practices you can do. So you can find this in the book. And I've also created a fierce self-compassion page on my website, which you can find if you just Google self-compassion, all algorithms lead to my website. And I have on there guided meditations and practices that you can do. So, you know, you can maybe start there and see if you resonate with the material And then if you want to go deeper, you can get my book.
0: Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on and congratulations on the new book.
2: Thanks, Dan. Um, And let me know when your book comes out. (laughs) But I've said I've just (laughs) anointed you to write. You're you're a really good person to do it.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm honored. Thank you. Big thanks to Kristen again, just to nod to the fact that she's had a really big impact on me. And and, uh, I recommend you check out her work including her prior appearances on this show. Before I let you go, I do want to give a shout out to two of my colleagues. First up, my good friend and co-author on the book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, great meditation teacher Jeff Warren. Jeff is offering a series of in-person retreats. That's right, in-person this summer and fall, which you might want to go check out. He's got two retreats. He's calling them both Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which, as mentioned, was our book that we co-authored. One of the retreats is in New York in August. The other is in North Carolina in October. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, maybe I should go to one of these. Also coming up in August, he's leading a new retreat, a training retreat called How to Guide Meditation. For more information on these retreats and all of Jeff's other offerings, or to sign up, check out jeffwarren.org. We'll put a link in the show notes. The other shout-out is to my ABC News colleague, LZ Granderson. He's got a new podcast. It's called Life Out Loud, and it draws from his own lived experience as a gay black father. On the show, he hosts thought-provoking, poignant, and engaging conversations with some of the most influential and inspiration in the LGBTQ plus community, as well as some allies. You're going to hear from big names, including Oscar winner Dustin Lance Black, Grammy nominee Rufus Wainwright, Pose star MJ Rodriguez, and even Dr. Anthony Fauci. Check out Life Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. I am, on a a personal note, a big fan of LZ's, so go check that show out. This show is made by Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikama, Maria Wirtel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. As always, a big shout out to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a conversation, a really provocative, fascinating conversation about masculinity with Daniel Ellenberg.